and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by one of our colleagues, Matt Continetti. Uh, he is the Patrick and Charlene Neal Chair in American Prosperity at AEI. Um, he is the author of a book about conservatism, which you should all go out and buy. Um, and he is a regular columnist for Commentary Magazine. And today we wanted to bring him on to kind of give us some 30,000 foot uh, views about how it is that American policies on children have evolved politically in the way they have. So welcome, Matt, and thanks for doing this. Uh, hello, Naomi. Hello, Ian, and hey, thank Matt. you for having me. So, so Matt, um, we wanted to start, I think, maybe with the, the piece that you wrote about affirmative action in a recent issue of Commentary Magazine. Um, and one of the things that you point out is that affirmative action um, is not like the Dobbs decision, say, um, that, you know, it's coming, it's come before the Supreme Court this year, and, and everyone is expecting that if affirmative action is not ended, at least uh, it will be significantly uh, cut back in a lot of ways. And, and uh, let's clarify, we're talking about race-based yes. affirmative mm -hmm. action. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, um, and you point out that, you know, this is uh, among a lot of the American public, this will not be a controversial decision. This will cement in place what um, most Americans have thought for a long time uh, should be uh, the end of, of race-based affirmative action. So can you kind of walk us through how it is that the left has become so attached to race-based affirmative action and how it is that the right kind of ended up being um, the big opponents of it when it seems like there is, you know, broad, let's say, even across the political spectrum agreement about what should be the fate of race-based affirmative action. Sure, I can take a stab at it. I mean, it is ironic at one level because many of the um, race-based um, government contracting programs uh, began under a Republican administration. They began uh, under uh, the administration of Richard Nixon in the 1970s. And since then, race-based affirmative action has kind of spread throughout our society, throughout our, our polity. Uh, and the place where it's the most controversial, of course, has been in college admissions. And I think Ian is absolutely right to point out the the um, the, the, the importance of the modifier, race-based. Because when you say, you know, to Americans, do you support affirmative action to um, help the advancement of, uh, of minorities in our society? Most Americans say, absolutely. But, then when, but when you kind of drill down and you say, okay, well, that's going to mean um, kind of race-based programs that inevitably will discriminate on the, on the basis of, of race, uh, Americans of all stripes uh, reject it. Um, and I think that's that kind of evolution in what affirmative action means, both in practice and in the way that Americans understand it, um, has been very important and is leading to kind of the uh, impasse that uh, the Supreme Court has reached today. But I, I think um, more generally, though, I, I put it this way. In some ways, affirmative action or race-based affirmative action has declined as a political issue over time. Um it, it, kind of the the height of the uh, response to it, the rejection of uh, uh, racial classification in government, in hiring and, and admissions, was the California Civil Rights Initiative, which passed in 1996. Um, and 
most recently in 2020, there was an attempt to overturn um, the the CCRI, and that failed. But it didn't get much attention. Um, mainly, uh, the administration of affirmative action is conducted on the judicial level, and that and that's kind of why this case before the Supreme Court is more uh, is very important. Neither party, it seems to me, wants to actually have a discussion about. Um, uh, race-based policies. And so they kind of leave it to the judicial system uh, to figure it out. And and what that has meant in, in, in practice over the past couple decades is that the status quo pretty much prevails. But because of the changes in the Supreme Court um, under the Trump administration and this, these new cases in which the plaintiffs are not white, they are uh, Asian American students who feel as though they have been discriminated against, um, I think that means that we're going to have a, a major decision um, against race-based admissions uh, coming down in next year. Yeah. Um, don't you think uh, race-based affirmative action is actually a really um, great example of left versus right ideology in that the left, the, the under the underlying assumption, well, we need race-based some, uh, affirmative action because you're inherently disenfranchised based on color. From the perspective of the left versus those on the right who are saying no um as you say americans may believe in affirmative action perhaps based on class based on income level but not on this characteristic so tease that out a bit because it seems like it actually represents the very essence of the difference between the two ideologies mm. well you know in many ways it's a great example of the unintended consequences of government action because when the initial um uh, basically, they were quotas when they when they were started um, under Nixon. Um, they were meant to address, of course, um, the disparity between uh, the American majority and the descendants of American slaves. That was the purpose: was to advance Black Americans who had gone through slavery and gone through Jim Crow, and, and still, of course, American society in the mid twentieth century was very different in its attitudes toward race than uh, American society today. But um, as often happens, uh, the government program expanded and these classifications began to emerge. And the law professor, David Bernstein, has this excellent book out called um, Unclassified, uh, which talks about just the arbitrary nature of the racial classifications that dictate so much uh, of American public life today. So a program initially designed to help the, the social and economic advancement of the descendants of American slaves has become basically a racial spoil system that is completely arbitrary. I mean, the great example that Bernstein uses is that, according to the U.S. government, um, Pakistanis are Asian, but Afghans are white. And of course, half of Afghanistan is essentially the same ethnic group as part of Pakistan. So it's, it's just completely absurd, right? And this got this was kind of brought up during the oral argument uh, earlier this year when Justice Alito is saying how, I mean, what makes no sense that you're going to uh, impose these classifications, Harvard, while you begin to admit students. So the left, um, I think the left, uh, to get to your question, Ian, I think since the mid 20th century, the left has um, embraced an idea of color consciousness. Um, that uh, is contrary to um, the more typical classical liberal position, 
which is would be color blindness in the sense of equality before the law, rule of law, treating people as individuals, not as members of groups. But the left in the mid 20th century um, began to embrace a color conscious uh, view. Um, and, and that has become entrenched uh, within uh, the liberal coalition over time. You know, of course, the in the 1990s, um, and even going into the George W. Bush administration, so, you know, the Clinton administration, the Democratic administration, Bush administration, the Republican one, there was a sense that we wanted to move away from color consciousness. You know, Clinton's famous cliche about affirmative action is he wanted to mend it, not end it, right? He kind of wanted to um, lower, you know, lower the temperature in the room. And I think W's administration was very much of the same mind. Um, uh, they didn't want to con- head on uh, confront the idea of race-based politics, um, but they wanted to kind of lower the temperature in some of these conversations. That is not, of course, the situation today, and especially since uh, 2020, um, the left has taken a view of society in which there are no real individuals. You are simply a member of a group, and um, through their intersectional lens, there are there's either uh, oppressed groups or oppressive groups. And um, this is this, I think, has caused kind of the backlash that we've been um, kind of hinting at um, throughout the conversation so far, which is that that is not that's not the view shared by most regular people of any of any race. <laughs> most people think that they're either individuals or members of families and they certainly have ethnicities and uh, kind of identities that way, but they don't view the, uh, reality through this lens of oppressor oppressed, which is certainly the, the I think, dominant among much of the left today. And I mean, just thinking about kind of the other side of this, which is, okay, so so this is um, the view of affirmative action as kind of who, who we're trying to help. But obviously, you know, when you look at the actual effects of the policy um, on students, you know, uh, from, you know, uh, the, the high schools that require tests for admissions through, um, uh, through elite colleges and universities, um, the effects on the kids who are, um, you know, these policies are supposed to help, they don't seem to be working. And, and so, you know, one of the questions, I I mean, again, like we're at AEI, we have priors, we believe that there are certain things that are true about American politics, but, but it does seem like the left has gotten a little blind to the evidence of what the impacts of these policies are. And, and, you know, I was wondering, you know, this also seems to be true, um, you know, not just in the case of affirmative action, but as we regularly talk about here um, in the cases of public schooling. And so, you know, what what do you think is sort of leading to what seems to be a kind of blind spot on the left about what these policies are doing to vulnerable kids? Uh, well, I think that I, I think ideology is responsible uh, for the blind spot. Um, and I think the ideological prior on much of the left is that there is no disparity without discrimination. So that it, so disparity in outcomes, QED means that there is discrimination or racism at work. And, and that is that is a belief among among the left today. And what's you know, you bring up Naomi the phenomenon of mismatch, 
um, which has been documented. Uh, Stuart Taylor Jr. wrote a book about it several years ago, co-authored the book. Uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia got uh, kind of in controversy when he brought up mismatch uh, in oral arguments. And the last time the court um, dealt with affirmative action in the Fisher case, I think 2016, and this is the phenomenon of um, simply because of racial preferences, there are some students who are admitted to schools that are just not prepared for the school. And so you have high levels of attrition uh, in law schools. Um, you have um, problems of, of feeling um, you know, alienated in the student body because um, uh, you're, you're not um, able to uh, kind of relate to it to um, and to, to do work uh, that's expected of you. Um, and so this has become a big problem. Now, what's the what's the response is to simply uh, suppress the evidence. So what we've, what we've seen uh, in anticipation of this of any Supreme Court ruling on on race based affirmative action is law schools now um, removing themselves from the U.S. news rankings. Yes. Uh, saying that they will no longer uh, require uh lsat scores right and we've seen I've, I've heard of some measures in um california that are being discussed where the sat would be forbidden you can't even don't even bother sending in your sat score we will not look at it right and so what what that means is that in enthralled to this ideology basically destroying any objective measure of um uh, of uh, of educational attainment, right, or 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 even of just the ability to take the test, right, um, which has been a standard measure, uh, um, kind of a benchmark for for the way in which our our higher education system has worked now for uh, for for many many decades, and and I and I think there, of course, um, the impacts too are, are will be will be terrible because, in truth, uh, these standardized tests. I'm not a you know I'm, per, I'm not personally a fan of standardized tests. I used to hate taking them, and uh, I don't necessarily think that they're the best measure of a student. But but you know the the purpose of them is to just say okay that you all have the same test, and that's let's see how you do right. And what that means, oftentimes, with people from different socioeconomic circumstances, um, people from different geographical circumstances uh, do get a uh, a leg up, right? I mean, they, uh, so. You'll find cases um, where, you know, law schools, they'll look at the LSATs and they'll find that someone go, went to a school um, that is not a top tier school, uh, and that is from a rural part of the country. They do very well on the LSAT, right? That is how the, they come across, they um, stand out to Never. the, yeah. yeah. And if you reject that, well, then those students are, are kind of just going to be left uh, in the wind because it, once you reject all objective measures, I mean, and of course, you know, GPAs and grade inflation, that, that's a hard metric. You know, SAT, of course, is the most kind of uh, objective or standard metric that, that's being rejected. LSAT, of course, well, get rid of that. We can't look at that. What that just means is, you know, you're just going to be left with subjective um, uh, judgments on the basis of these admissions officers who are going to, as they say, they're going to look at the whole applicant, which means that they're going to just kind of look very closely for any hint yep. that they might conform to their desired racial allocation of spots. Yep. So 
it is it does get depressing when you see like this wave of efforts to reduce standards or eliminate standards um i saw an interview of you with uh, margaret hoover and just like what is the future of the conservative movement when you see such efforts to you know dumb down standards for example and you had a great answer which is that well i'm optimistic about the conservative movement because at the least we've got the overreaches of the progressive left. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm just I mean, curious, do you view the conservative movement as reactionary to the progressive left, or is it its own independent movement asserting forward-looking ideas, which are just not in response to everything that you were describing? Well, I think at the, uh, at the root, um, conservatism is a response to the left. I kind of shy away from the word reaction simply because that means, um, you know, that has a kind of a political connotation of not just responding to the left, but turning back the clock, you know, to 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 before the left, uh, you know, even began. Um, uh, and uh, so I think there's a difference between reaction and conservatism. Um, so conservatism starts as a response to the left. And uh, in the American context, it's a response to progressive overreach. But it becomes a problem for conservatism if it's just a response. And so uh, a conservative movement uh, has been most successful when it marries um, the uh, response of, of everyday Americans who are disgusted with left overreach with an agenda that points to the future. And with policies that say, well, we can address these um, problems uh, in an appropriate way. And I think the problem for the conservative movement today is that while there is much um, disgust with the left uh, in America, um, Americans do not trust the conservative movement to have any constructive policies or way forward. Uh, and I think, you know, an example of this in the most recent elections, according to my analysis, is the inflation question. You know, uh, inflation is a huge issue. Um, Americans think we're in a recession. I mean, the the data, the public opinion data is consistent now for months, um, whether it's a technical recession or not, that Americans think that we're in a recession. Um, and yet the Democrats won independent voters. Um, and I think one of the reasons they did, and it's unusual for the party in power to win the independent voters in a midterm election, is that uh, the Republicans really didn't say what they would do about inflation. They were talking about it. It's a problem. Uh, maybe they'll say, well, we need to drill more. We need to unleash more domestic sources of energy. That's a little bit abstract, right? Um, but they really wouldn't say, you know, what, what is necessary. Um, and so you need to, you need to be able to have both an understanding of what people are upset about uh, and a a path forward for them. And I do think you when think we that, um, do, do you think that the right has a path forward, a constructive message when it comes to uh, improving the lives of American children? I mean, that that was sort of they've kind of taken up this mantle um, in a lot of especially local and state elections as being kind of the party of parents. Now, obviously, I mean, part of that, again, was starts with this reactionary 
you know, you're trying to, you know, change our kids' genders without parents knowing in schools or, you know, some of these other the race-based policies we were talking about. But do you think that we've moved from just the reactionary to constructive policies on the right when it comes to kids? I think on education, um, the the right and the conservative movement and even the Republican Party have um, have made great strides um, in recent years. I mean, I think that's an, an issue where they're much stronger um, than they have been um, in the past. I think a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is the pandemic um, and the school closures. Another is the fact that when the kids were at home, um, parents actually saw what was going on in the classrooms or what was not going on. Yeah, right. Um, and then, uh, you know, see uh, the third re- thing that's going on here is, I, I mean, the, the educational, the, look, and not all teachers are woke radicals, but there are enough, especially the younger teachers, right, which is something that worries me, uh, that you just can't help if you're a parent, you just you see the stuff that's going on or the stuff that's being pushed in the school libraries. And you begin to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what has the right responded? Well, one is to kind of, you know, um, mobilize that discontent, right? But another is to put forward uh, school choice as an answer, charters as an answer, um, to put forward, you know, um, accountability on the public school system, right? In, in terms of some of the uh, standards that Governor Yunkin of Virginia, my governor, uh, has recently announced, or that some of the legislation that uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has enacted. Um, and I think I think that has been met with public support, you know, and I, because I think it's both it's both a recognition of of, of a wrong um, of overreach and a program um, to address the underlying concerns. So education is a strong point, I think, on the right today. Economics, um, uh, other social policies are, are a little bit uh, of a weaker. All right. Well, those are all the questions we have for you today, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get these episodes on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Matt, thanks for that perspective. Very helpful. Thank you so much.